at Creasy. I'm one of the pastoral interns here at Central West End Church. Um, Eric and Jenny are on vacation this week at GA in California. That's General Assembly, for those of you who are new. But by the way, welcome to all of our visitors. We're so glad to have you. Um, I would ask, first of all, for all of us to pray this week for Eric and Jenny. Um, Being a pastor is a really hard job uh, because it's a very relational job. So it's really hard to know when you're not working because relationships don't stop, right? And part of his job is to carry our burdens before the Lord. And so this is an opportunity for him and for Jenny to really set the work down at the Lord's feet and to rest. So, and that's actually really hard to do. So I would encourage all of us this week to pray for them while they're away, okay? Um, but let me real quick give us our announcements, and then we're going to read the word. Um, as always, children ages kindergarten to first grade are dismissed at this time. Uh, this Wednesday, we are having unison again. Um, if you could, didn't get enough of me and Ryan, our tall, very tall guitar player who's right here, today you can come and we're going to lead a time of worship on Wednesday night. The address is in your bulletin. Uh, this is really not, this is, we're trying, we're aiming for having something that's a little less structured than Sunday morning. So this is a time for extended prayer, extended worship. Um, we actually had a really great time last month and I got some really great feedback. So we're hoping to let it grow and mature into a really wonderful time that we can spend together on a regular basis. So if you're interested in that, information's in the bulletin. Uh, also, don't forget, podcasts on our website. You can, if you're never aren't able to be here, you can listen to the sermon online or through iTunes or our website. Um, I think that's all the announcements that I have. Any, any, anybody? I miss anything? No? I don't see anybody like doing this. Uh, so, I am going to ask Gaetana if she will come read our passage this morning. human example, brothers and sisters, even with the human main covenant, covenant, no one annuals to it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now that the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annual covenant previously ratified by God. So, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgression, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in through in place through angels by an intermediary now an intermediary implies more than one but god is one is the law then contrary to promises of god certainly not for if a law had been given that 
could in give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the, the, by the law. But the pro scripture in, in pro prisons, every, everything understands, so that the promise made by faith in Jesus Christ might, might be given to those who believe. The word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Um, let, me, let me actually pray, and then I'll, we'll dive in. Uh, Father, thank you for Gaetana. Thank you that you ordain praise from children to show people like me who think that they're so smart and so put together um, that you delight in small things and you delight in humble things. Humble me now, Lord, and use me to glorify yourself. In your precious son's name, amen. Um, so we are continuing our study of the New Testament book of Galatians. Um, oh, by the way, I, I move a lot, so I'm going to be down here so I don't trip. As, as, can everybody see me just generally okay? Yeah, I'm pretty loud, so you, everybody should be able to hear me. Okay, so... We're continuing the study of New Testament book of Galatians. Galatians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul that centers on one big topic, and that is, what is the gospel? Now, if you remember, the reason that Paul had to write this letter is that a group of Jewish teachers, um, they're most often referred to as the Judaizers, uh, although earlier in Galatians, Paul actually refers to them as those of the circumcision party, which kind of sounds like an oxymoron. But, you know, whatever. Um, so anyway, the Judaizers had come into the Galatian church and had begun teaching a false gospel. Uh, and so, if you remember, their version of the gospel went something like this. Faith in Jesus plus works of the law equals salvation. Faith in Jesus plus works of the law equals salvation. And remember, when they said works of the law... They were not just referring to the Ten Commandments. They were also referring to the entire Old Testament law. So all of the ceremonial laws, things like circumcision, hence the name, uh, and uh, dietary laws and the clean laws and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Now, what we've been seeing as our, uh, over the past few weeks is that Paul has been in different ways building his case to say that is not the gospel. There is only one gospel, and it's this. Faith in Jesus equals salvation, right? God justifies us. Remember, we've been using that term to mean validation and acceptance before God. God justifies us not based on any merits or good works or prerequisites on our part, but simply because of his mercy and his love given through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Now, today, we are actually going to be looking at a, a a question that Paul addresses. This is a question that always comes up when you start talking about the gospel. It appears multiple times in the New Testament. It, it has been the center of theological debate in the Christian church for the last 2,000 years. In fact, you guys ever heard of something called the Protestant Reformation? It's a little really obscure thing that happened in Europe in the Middle Ages. Uh, at the center of the Protestant Reformation, well, not the only thing, but this was one of the things that sparked it was this question. What's the question? What do we do with the law? 
What do we do with the law? If the gospel really is that God justifies us, he grants us the status of perfect righteousness before we ever embody the state of perfect righteousness, then why did he give the law? Um, And generally speaking, there's two mistakes that we make. We in our day and age and people back in Paul's day and age that people make when coming to this question. It's kind of two pitfalls, all right? The first pitfall is what we might call legalism. Legalism says, well, God did give the law, and he didn't say that obeying it was optional, so therefore there must be something that we contribute to our justification. There must be some good work, some merit, something on our part that we contribute to our salvation. This is the pitfall that the Judaizers were falling into. That's legalism. The other pitfall is license. License says, well, if God justifies me, not based on anything that I do, but simply because of his mercy, then it doesn't really matter what I do. I can kind of do what I want and just ask Jesus to forgive me. The book of 1 Corinthians is a church struggling with license. So if you want to look more into that. Um, That's license. Neither of them is the gospel. They are both dead wrong. What does Paul say? How does the gospel deal with the law? Well, if you look, verses 15 to 18, Paul starts with an illustration. He says, look, everyday example When people make a covenant, they don't go back and and change it. Now, that word covenant in the Greek, it can mean a couple of different things. It can mean covenant like an Old Testament covenant, like the kind of covenant that God made with Abraham. We talked about that last week, right? It can mean that. It could also mean, and it's more likely that what Paul is using it to refer to, is a will. Like a last will and testament. Because in ancient Greece, it was against the law if you made a will to go back and change it. And that practice continued on. So he's basically saying, okay, look, when people make a contract, they don't go and change it. How much more then when God makes a promise, when he signs a contract, when he makes a covenant, he won't change it. So because the law was given well after the promise, The law doesn't change the promise. It doesn't cancel the promise. It doesn't go against the promise. Rather, what Paul is arguing is that the law is a part of the promise. It fits into the gospel. That's what we're going to look at today. Uh, So if you are a note taker, pens at the ready. I'm about to give you my three points. Ready? (laughs) We're going to look at the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law. We're going to look at the problem with the law. The problem with the law. And lastly, we're going to look at the person of the promise. Person of the promise. I'm Presbyterian, and I believe in the power of alliteration, so all my points begin with the letter P. Can I get an amen? Yeah, there we go. All right. Fantastic. Okay, so purpose of the law. Why why did God give the law? Well, Thankfully for us, Paul tells us straight up, verse 19, it was given because of transgressions. That's a real Bible word, isn't it? Just a Bible-y word. Transgressions. What does that word mean? Well, to transgress something, that word isn't really used in English anymore. 
We just, it's fallen out of, our, our, out of English usage. But there's another English word that we do use that literally means the exact same thing. And that's the word trespass. And we all know what it means to trespass. If you see a sign that says, no trespassing, what's it mean? It means don't go there, right? It means there's a boundary line. There's a line. And you may not cross it. You can go anywhere you want on this side of the boundary, but you may not, should not, ought not go over that line. Right? And if you do, you have trespassed. Now, let's, let's just call a spade a spade. We don't like that. We don't like boundaries because we're Americans. And this is America, land of the free and home of the brave. And you don't tell me where I can and cannot go. This is a free country. My four-year-old told me that the other day when I told him it was time to take a nap. <laughs> Seriously. Now, just generally speaking, let's just be honest with ourselves. Generally speaking, when talking about boundaries, as Americans, we tend to view them as a restriction of our freedom. Right? We view them as a limitation on our life. But that's not how the Bible talks about boundaries. The Bible almost always talks about boundaries as good things, as a blessing, not as a restriction of freedom, but as a preservation of freedom. Not as a limitation on our life, but a protection of our life. So what Paul is saying is that we... uh, we have transgressed a boundary line that was meant for our protection. Think of it this way. If you went fishing, and you, at the ocean, and you caught a fish, and you pulled it out of the water, took it off the hook, and you took that fish, and you threw it onto the sand, right, onto the beach. And as you threw it, you cried out, be free, little fishy. Go wherever thy fishy heart desires. Well, what would happen? Well, for one, everybody around you would look at you like you're a lunatic. Second of all, the fish would die. Because the fish is only free in the water. Within the boundaries of the water, the fish can live. Right? That's how the Bible talks about boundaries. All right. Put a pin in that. Let's get back to the law. Now, earlier, we sang a song. It's an old Amy Grant song from the 80s. And I'm sure many of you are thinking, why are we doing this song? Are they just trying to be vintage and cool? Well, first of all, we are cool. Second of all, we chose that song because it's actually based on a psalm. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the entire Bible. It's like 176 verses long. In fact, I challenge all of you to go home tonight and read it in its entirety. And if you do, I will award you 50,000 bonus points. 50,000 bonus points. So even though Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the entire Bible... It's all about one thing, God's law and how awesome it is. Now, again, we're Americans, so we're like, the law is awesome? Ew. But doesn't that, to the psalmist, God's law is amazing. And around verse 105, he says, your law, Lord, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. All right, note takers, you ready? The purpose of the law is to be a light. What do lights do? Well, they reveal things. Okay, if this room, um, there are no windows, turn all the lights out, it's pitch black. And we all said, I said, all right, everybody get out of the building. What would happen? 
we'd be bumping into each other, knocking things over, people, ah, right? Why? Because you can't see the way the room is laid out. You don't see what's in front of you. You're in the dark. But if I turn the light on, we may all go across the room unhindered because we, may, we will see how the room is laid out, right? That's the imagery the psalmist is using, that the law reveals to us how life works best. It's a picture of a beautiful human life. Think of it like this. Uh, think of the Ten Commandments for a minute. Just kind of put them in your head. Imagine a world where everyone in the world obeyed the Ten Commandments all the time. Imagine a world where no one ever murdered. Actually, let's take it to the fullest extent that Jesus does. Imagine a world where no one ever hated anyone else. Imagine a world where everybody spoke the truth. Imagine a world where no one took what did not belong to them. Actually, more than that, where no one even desired what did not belong to them. Imagine a world where everyone was faithful to their spouse, both in their thoughts and their deeds. Doesn't that sound like the world you want to live in? Doesn't that sound like that's the way the world is supposed to be? I want to live in that world. Now, here's what the law of God explicitly tells us, that all of the commandments are built on the first. That all of the commandments of God flow out of, are built on top of the very first commandment. What's the first? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength and have no other gods before him. The law reveals to us that as human beings, fundamentally, at the center of who we are, the defining element of what it means to be a human being is that we are made to be in an intimate, loving, personal, relational connection with our creator God. But there's a problem. You see, we have trespassed out of the boundaries of our humanity. We have been cut off from that which would protect our life and preserve our freedom. And when we look at the commandments, when we look at the picture that the law gives us of a beautiful human life, we, re we realize that our lives don't look that way. We do hate. We, we don't tell the truth. I don't know about you, but I constantly want things that don't belong to me. And it's because that connection that we were built for, that intimate, personal, loving, reciprocal relationship with God has been severed. The purpose of the law is to be a light that reveals how life works best and exposes that at best our lives don't work. I like that. I thought that was kind of poetic. So, the law is to be a light that reveals how life works best and exposes that at best our lives don't work. Now, if you were paying attention, which I know you all were, you might be thinking, hold on, Matt Creasy. You just said that the Judaizers, when they talked about the works of the law, they did not just mean the Ten Commandments. They also meant the entire Old Testament law. Are you saying that life works best if everybody gets circumcised and eats kosher? That's a great question. I'm glad you bring it up. That's exactly what I'm about to talk about. 
there's actually another purpose to the law. Um, okay, so you see, look, look down at our passage again. Do you see in 19 and 20 where he, Paul's talking about the, God giving the law through an angel, an intermediary, and an intermediary implies more than one, but God's one? That little section. Okay. Even biblical scholars aren't quite, they just don't know quite what to make of that. It's, it's a little bit confusing. But here's what we can say for sure. This is what we can definitely say. Paul is referencing God giving the law to Moses and the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. Because remember, just in case you haven't ever read the book of Exodus, that Israel's slaves in Egypt. God rescues them out. Miraculously, they walk through the Red Sea. He takes them across the desert, brings them to Mount Sinai, and then he makes a covenant with them. Just like he made with Abraham. He makes a covenant, makes a contract with them. And then he gives them the law, all of the law, both the Ten Commandments and all the rest. But right before he gives them the law, in Exodus 19, he gives them a fantastic little purpose statement. He tells them exactly why he's about to give them the law. He's like, Israel, if you would obey my law, if you would obey it, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. All right, let's take that backwards. What does the word holy mean? Well, we tend to think of it as holy meaning somehow inherently better than, right? Like holier than thou. That's not what it means. Definitely not in that context. Holy means simply set apart for a special purpose. Have any of you ever had like a money jar? Like you take money and you put it away and when it gets filled up, you like go on a vacation or buy a present or something? That's holy money. It's not better than the rest of your money, but you've set it aside for a special purpose. Okay? Holy nation. What kingdom of priests? What's the job of a priest? What do they do? Priests facilitate a relationship between God and people. They are mediators between God and people, right? So why did God give Israel the law? Because he was setting them aside for the special purpose of mediating a relationship between God and all of the other nations of the earth. Think of it like this. Imagine you go outside at night, and you have a flashlight, and you shine the light straight up in the air. What are you going to say? Nothing. Why? Because in order for the flashlight to work, you, the light has to shine on something, right? The light has to reflect off of something in order for you to see it. You, get, you guys tracking with me? So the law was meant to make a model community that would live in the light and reflect how humanity was meant to live. Right? So why is God giving them all of these extra laws, all the ceremonial laws, the civil? Why did he give it all to them? Because he's saying this, Israel, I want you to be different. I want you to be different than all of the other nations of the entire earth. I want you to be physically marked as different. That's circumcision. I want you to eat differently. I want you to worship me differently than all of the other nations worship their gods. I want you to conduct your society differently than every other society is conducted. That's the civil laws. And why is it arbitrary? No, because the all of those distinctives, all of those differences point them back to the fact that Israel has a relationship with God and that we too were made to be in relationship with our creator. 
The purpose of the law is to be a light that reveals how life works best and exposes that at best our lives don't work. And the law was meant to make a model community that would live in the light and reflect how humanity was meant to live. But that takes us to the problem. Paul tells us the problem with the law. It's down in verse 21. See that? What does he say? He says, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be by works of the law. But as it is, he, God, the scriptures have imprisoned everything under sin. What's Paul talking about? We might say it like this. Our problem is that we think our problem is primarily informational. Our problem is that we think our problem is primarily informational. It's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all of you fellow dads out there. I know for a fact that all of you have said these words. And if you're not a father, you have heard a father say these words at some point in your life. Didn't I tell you not to? Blank. Didn't I tell you not to put gum in your sister's hair? Didn't I tell you not to put your toys in the toilet? Why did you do that? Why do we say that? You see, our problem is that we think our problem is primarily informational. We think that if you tell someone how life works best, they will then live that way. But our experience tells us that's not true. History shows that's not true. The history of Israel is like a test case in how emphatically untrue that is. They were meant to live in the light, but they could not do it. Over and over and over again, throughout the Old Testament, God keeps coming back to them and saying, you're worshiping other gods. You aren't sacrificing and worshiping me in the way that I told you to. You are not conducting yourselves in your society the way I told you to. You were looking just like everyone else. They could not live in the light of God's law. Why? You know what? And let's not throw Israel under the bus, okay? We would have done the exact same thing. There's nothing particularly ugly about them. We would, have done, we would have done the exact same thing, okay? Why? It's because at the foundation, at the center, at the defining element of who we are, that intimate, personal, loving, reciprocal connection with our creator has been severed. And we're like that fish, baking on the sand. We're dying, and we can't save ourselves. The law is a light that is a fantastic diagnostic. The law gives a great diagnosis. <laughs> the law is a light that gives a great diagnosis, but it has no power to cure us. The problem with the law is that it has no power. It shows us the problem, but it has no power. But that actually takes us to the person. All right, do you see there in verse 16 where Paul says uh, that God made a promise to Abraham and to Abraham's offspring, but that offspring is Jesus? And then later in 19 and 22, he references it again, that Jesus is the promised offspring and that he fulfills the promise that God made to Abraham. Is Paul just playing fast and loose with the Bible? You ever hear the phrase, to a man with a hammer, every problem is a nail? Is, is Paul just taking like the Jesus hammer and going bang, 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 bang all over the Old Testament? How is Jesus the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham? Abraham had Isaac as an offspring. 
Well, let's remind ourselves exactly what God promised Abraham. He said, I'm going to give you a son. Well, that was Isaac. He said, I'm going to bring out a nation from that son. That's Israel. I'm going to give that nation a land. That's Canaan. And through you, Abraham, and your offspring, I'm going to bless the entire world. Did, did Isaac bless the whole world? I don't, I don't think so. Did any of Abraham's offspring bless the entire world? They were supposed to. They were supposed to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, reflecting how humanity was meant to live. But they could not live in the light of God's law. But one Israelite did. There was one offspring of Abraham who lived his entire life in the light of God's law. And more than that, he is the light of God. There is one man in all of history that we can look at and say, that man, him, he, that's what a perfect, beautiful human life is, looks like. That's how we were meant to live. Jesus shows us what humanity was meant to be, what a perfect human life looks like. Because he loved God with every fiber of his being. And because he loved God, he loved everybody he came in contact with. Jesus had that connection that we were made for. But if all Jesus is, is our example, if all he does is just show us what a perfect human life looks like, then he is no better than the law. Because we are still on the other side of that boundary line. We are still cut off from that which would protect our life and preserve our freedom. But Jesus is better than the law. Because the problem with the law is that it has no power, but the person of the promise has all the power. Jesus not only shows us what a perfect human life looks like, Jesus lived a perfectly human life for us. We talk a lot about Jesus being our substitute here at Central Weston Church. Last week we looked at how Jesus bore the curse of our inhumanity. But he not only bore the curse of our inhumanity, he also lived a perfect human life in our place. And on the cross, a great mystery happened. Theologians like to call it the great exchange. God took Jesus' perfect humanity off of him and he gave us, he gives us the status of perfect humanity. And he took our inhumanity and placed that status on Jesus. And when that exchange happened, it bought something. It bought our very humanity back. Friends, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you are human again. Your very humanity has been restored to you. Now I know that somebody in here is thinking this. Are you saying that Christians are somehow more human than non-Christians? 
In a sense, yes, I am saying that. Because what did we say? We said at the center, foundationally, at the very core of what it means to be a human being is that we have an intimate, personal, loving, reciprocal relationship with our creator. And if you're a Christian, if your faith is in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. God himself, the third person of the Trinity, has taken up residence in your insides. That is what it means foundationally to be a human being, that you have an intimate, personal, loving, reciprocal relationship with your creator. Um, I just threw a lot at you, and I would encourage us all to go out today and consider these things, but I want to give us some application, something to kind of put in your pocket and walk out the door with. Um, On your own, in one-on-one, in small groups and community groups, ask yourselves this question. What, what pitfall do I lean towards? We all lean to one side or the other. It's just, that's part of how, what, what happens. Do you lean towards legalism or do you lean towards license? Both reduce the law. Legalism has to reduce the law to make it manageable. Legalism tends to focus on one or two commandments and ignore the rest. License reduces the law because it says the law doesn't matter. But don't you see, when you reduce the law, you reduce our very humanity. And you take away from the life and the work of Jesus Christ. We don't have to be afraid to let the full light of God's law shine on our life. Because it will always lead us to the one who bought our humanity back. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you loved us so much and you love your creation so much that instead of parting with us, you chose rather to send your son to live the life that we had no power to live. And I thank you that right now, if there is anybody in this room who is still cut off from you, that if they would but cry mercy regardless of their past, regardless of their age, their gender, their race, their ethnicity, their, the money they have or don't have in the bank, that does, regardless of who they are or where they're from, you will have mercy on them. Thank you, Lord. And it's in your beautiful son's name we pray. Amen.